So as of 6.30 a.m. this morning, the 15-day weather forecast for the Walla Walla Valley calls for temperatures between 72 and 75 degrees with almost zero chance of rain. And this is a very good thing because seven days from now, we gather on 4th Street at the largest dining room event in the valley each year, the longest table. There were single-digit tables remaining to sign up for, so if there are church members today who have not yet uh, agreed to host a space, uh, we need just a few more. I want to thank Adventist Health Walla Walla for once again nourishing us with bottled water that will be prevalent up and down that table, and to the students gathered today, uh, this is not a potluck. This is not a free food line, but rather an opportunity for you to sit and to enjoy the rich community that you have become a part of here. So next Sabbath, the longest table, number seven, is on. I want you to imagine this afternoon. You are hiking out at Bennington Lake. And a man comes up to you and signs a check for $5 million and says that God has wished that this check be put in your name. A journey interrupted, you go back home or to your dorm room, changed. Or imagine this afternoon walking the sidewalks of downtown Walla Walla when you see a man hit the pavement, some kind of cardiac arrest, and somehow you summon the courage, and you literally pound the life back into that man, a journey interrupted, and you go back home, go back to your dorm room, changed. Or imagine that you're hiking down the south fork of the Walla Walla River. You're single, perhaps a student, and 25 years from today, you will mark this Sabbath afternoon as the moment that you bumped into the love of your life. It could happen this day. A journey interrupted forever. Or imagine this very afternoon hiking to the top of Whitman Mission. And there at that glorious peak, you have an encounter, you are certain, with an angel, a messenger from heaven with something to say to you, a journey interrupted, and you go back to your home, you go back to that dorm room, changed forever. Who knows what this afternoon will hold? But for the purposes of this morning, we join a man named Balaam who experiences a journey interrupted. You can see that we are in part four of our sermon series, Characters and Character. And today we journey with Balaam, north from Moab up to the Jordan River on the east side of the Dead Sea. We discover that not once, not twice, but three times, his mode of transportation breaks down. 
His donkey stops dead in her tracks, will not move. Three times Balaam curses his animal out and in fact beats the poor beast. When finally, a third time, the beating happens and all of a sudden Balaam sees what only his animal has seen. An angel stands in the path with a drawn sword, communicating to Balaam that his journey is headed in the wrong direction. In Numbers chapter 22, in verse 34, we read, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. And we'll come back to that word sin in a moment. I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, if you are displeased, I will go back. A journey interrupted. That's the trek we're on with Balaam this day. Going along, but now a messenger from heaven with a stern word that turns us in a completely different direction. So what's the backstory? Apparently, Israel, growing in political and military might, conquering nation upon nation, has Balak, the king of Moab, very afraid. And he cannot come up with a political or a military response that he thinks will provide his nation safety. And so he turns to Balaam, who apparently had developed a reputation, but also a skill set with his tongue, with his lips, with his mouth. Balaam, so good at raining down curses, so good at speaking despicable things to other human beings, saying things even to nations that can discourage to the point that change happens. I ask you this morning, do you know anyone who has developed a skill in the way that they use their words? They can stop hope dead in its tracks. Perhaps this morning you feel a twinge, perhaps the pinch of the Holy Spirit, maybe that person is you. But the king identifies Balaam. Surely if you will speak, you can stop a powerful army dead in its tracks. Notice the language of Balak time and again. Now come put a curse on these people, for I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Come and put a curse on these people. Come curse Jacob for me. I brought you to curse my enemies. Perhaps it will please God to let you curse them. I summon you to curse my enemies, but you have blessed them. And then he finally says, neither curse them at all nor bless them at all. But God has a different plan standing in that road. He says to Balaam, you must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. Speak only what I tell you. And Balaam responds, I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. 
How can I curse those God has not cursed? I have received a command to bless. It pleased the Lord to bless Israel. May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. I must say only what the Lord says. And if the first part of the story is all about the word curse, phase two is all about blessing. You see, the key that Balaam had to come to grips with, God says you can't curse anybody that I have not cursed. Which got your pastor to thinking about a couple of questions. Number one, who has God cursed? And two, who therefore may I curse? Who has God cursed? And if I can figure that out, that gives me then permission that I can go curse them. I'd like to take you briefly, but quickly, so buckle your seatbelts to the edge of your pew through a theology of blessing in the Scripture. First from creation, and then Abraham, Jesus, Paul, and Revelation. Here goes. Did you know that God offers three blessings? in the creation story? Just three. First, we read, God blessed them, and here referring to birds and fish, that is, to the air above us and the water beneath us. Second, God blessed them, that is, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, and therefore their DNA blessed. And the final of the three blessings, God blessed the seventh day, that is, the holiday which celebrates the whole of God's creation. Interesting, this pattern of three, after the curse of sin in the world, God's work through Abraham. Notice, first, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Second, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. And a third time, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, speaking to people groups that no one thinks should be blessed. Three times three. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Reflecting about times before the creation of the world, notice Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Three blessings since the very beginning. And finally, in Revelation, we find seven blessings. Three in the first section of the book, three at the last, and then at the pinnacle of this rich mountain of blessing, right there in the center we read, then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And I ask you scholars this morning, in the gospel narrative, who is invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb? Everybody. 
And so to summarize our quick theology, we discover a triple blessing at creation, a triple blessing in Abraham, a triple, triple blessing in Jesus, a triple blessing in Paul, and a double, triple, plus one blessing in Revelation. <laughs> All creation, blessed. All nations, blessed. All sinners, blessed. All humans, blessed. All invitees are blessed. The whole of creation is blessed. And so your pastor's pesky and pernicious questions. Who has God cursed that I might figure out who I get to curse? And the answer is nobody. Nobody at all. Balaam, en route to a life of cursing, meets a messenger from heaven, the word is clear. You may curse only those who God has cursed, only to discover that God curses no one. And so now cursing is off the table altogether. What lessons might we learn from Balaam this morning if we are to pursue this new life of blessing with the words that we say? I think at least two. First has to do with quantity, with quantity in our words. Remember Numbers 22, verse 35, God says, speak only what I tell you. God circumscribes the amount of words that are to be said, only what I tell you. I found it interesting this week that in the English, notice the word bless, the final four letters are less. <laughs> less. Perhaps the beginning of a life of blessing is that I actually use fewer words. Perhaps you can relate, I certainly can, to the image of these birds gathered together. Do you ever participate in a conversation like this? <laughs> now I'm going to tell you something, but don't repeat it. I'm going to say something here. It's not gossip. I'm just saying it because you should be in the know, but it can't go beyond this room. I got a few things I got to say, but we, we, we really shouldn't let it permeate the community. Oh, how often do we say things and say things more than we should? Perhaps we should take on this second community of birds, a better model, take a look. Maybe it's time that we start closing the beak of one another and perhaps giving each other permission. Please stop me if I am not living in the land of blessing. Proverbs 10, 19 tells us too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Some translations uh, describe it almost in a ratio. Where there are many words, there exists much sin. Saying fewer things might result in less sin. This year, one of the great writers about writing, William Zinser, passed away. I remember using his textbook in my 
college freshman writing course, one of the best that I took. And on his passing, I, I, I remembered something that he said. It's true, decades ago, that I have not forgotten this simple bit of advice for young writers. Look for the clutter and prune ruthlessly. Be grateful for everything you can throw away. I wonder, is that not only good advice for those of us who attempt to write, but what if we applied Zinser's wisdom to what we speak? Prune ruthlessly and celebrate everything you can throw away. Celebrate the Facebook post that never gets posted. Celebrate the comment in the committee meeting that never gets made. In fact, I wonder in whatever group you're a part of this week, a particular meeting or a committee or uh, some gathering, what would it be like to attempt to simply say nothing at all for the duration of that hour or two, simply to develop the discipline of saying less? Lesson number one, I think, from Balaam. Speak only what I tell you. The issue is quantity. And then, of course, as we might expect, we pivot to lesson two, which is, in fact, quality, the quality of what we say. And maybe for just a moment, we could consider different areas of our lives. First, to those in the room who are married, what is it that your spouse might say about the blessing or cursing of your words? Gary Chapman's famous book, The Love Languages, begins with love language number one, which is the power of words of affirmation. And in that chapter, he tells stories of couples that come to him for therapy, badly broken, and the only remedy he gives to them is to start making lists, to start speaking on a regular basis positive things about your spouse. He tells uh, the story of one woman who's deeply distressed because for weeks, for months, for years, she has been trying to get her husband to paint one of the bedrooms, and he won't do it. She says all he does is wash his car all day. That's all he'll do. He won't listen to me. And Chapman says, well, why don't you go home and just compliment him about how fantastic it is that he keeps the car so clean and see what happens. The next week, the woman comes back to the therapy session, her jaw about hitting the floor. He painted the bedroom. <laughs> Unbelievable. Chapman tells stories of marriages saved in his practice with only one remedy given. Make sure that you are flooding your spouse with words of blessing and affirmation and not the language of damnation and curses. A second area, how about our children? Mark Twain once said that a good compliment can carry him for two full months. One compliment, that's all he needs. 
Do you have memories of when you were a child and you can remember what particular adults said to you or about you? I can remember decades later the time that someone said to me, you are lazy. And I can remember who, and I can remember where, and I can feel the sting to this day. About the same time, I remember another adult saying to me, Alex, you are such a hard worker. I can remember who, I can remember where, and I can feel the blessing to this day. Parents, teachers, grandparents, church community, what do our children, those sweet, young, tender ears, hear from us? What is the quality of our words? A third category, the places that we study and work. Those places that we go to earn a living. What do we say in those environments? The concern in our day and age, which I think is appropriate, is the activity we call bullying. Bullying. Saying words in the workplace like fat and ugly and stupid and useless and dead weight. Not only are such words illegal, such words can cost one a job, but surely, Christians, there's a much higher bar for the moral import of what we say in our places of learning and our places of productivity carries eternal weight. A fourth category, yes, here we go, politics. <laughs> I was reading in the book of James. Have you read this passage? James says to the Christians, I'm concerned because some of you, with the very same mouth, are praising your Father in heaven, but you are cursing His children, human beings who are made in His image. You are blessing and cursing with the very same mouth, and this should not be so. If the Apostle James were standing in front of us today, I think he might put it this way. Christians, how can you show up for church on Sabbath morning and sing hymns of praise to God and an hour later on Facebook or in dinner conversation curse Donald Trump, curse Hillary Clinton, and say despicable things about men and women who are the children of God. How is this possible? How can you engage in this duplicitous activity? This week I participated in something that I intend to do more of. And I, in fact, I sat in this very sanctuary and I prayed for three politicians that I don't like at all. And they are people I'm not going to tell you about. Um, <laughs> but 
but I will tell you what it did for my soul. For these men and women, these children of God, became His beloved and not human flesh that I have the right to attack here and there and everywhere. My brothers and sisters, the Christian standard rises far above partisan politics to a mode of behavior that ought distinguish the ways that we communicate on the world wide web and in our local communities. We do not come here to worship and go there to tear other people apart. We do not complain about cursed Washington, D.C. and seek to change it by cursing it all the more. With our words, we bring blessing or bring cursing. And James says, you cannot have fresh water and salt water coming from the same source. You must make a choice. And finally, how about the world beyond humanity, our place, college place, Walla Walla. What do we say about our weather, about the streets, the people, the place? Oh, do we not have a responsibility in the quality of our language to bless the whole of God's creation? I think so. I think so. So, Balaam, confronted on that road, has this response, you remember. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. The stakes of this redirection from being people of curse to people of bless, serious business, it's at the level of sin. There it is, the word sin. But you know, we don't really like the word sin in our day and age. Oh, we've come up with a whole list of substitutes that make it more palatable, haven't we? Here's a few. Gaffes and inaccuracies, omissions, flubs and slips and trips and boo-boos. We don't like this word sin. For it suggests that something deep is amiss. Barbara Brown Taylor is an Episcopalian priest and college professor. She has written a magnificent little book entitled Speaking of Sin, The Lost Language of Salvation. And I wish to read to you some of her words. They are gold. Brown Taylor writes, abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. Human beings will continue to experience alienation, deformation, damnation, and death, no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language will simply leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of their presence in our lives. Ironically, it will also weaken the language of grace, since the full impact of forgiveness cannot be felt apart from the full impact of what has been forgiven. Sin, she says, 
is our only hope. Because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step towards setting it right again. There is no help for those who admit no need of help. There is no repair for those who insist that nothing is broken. And there is no hope of transformation for a world whose inhabitants accept that it is sadly but irreversibly wrecked. And then she writes, the church exists so that God has a community in which to save people from meaninglessness by reminding them who they are and what they're for. The church exists so that God has a place to point people toward a purpose as big as their capabilities and to help them identify all the ways they flee from that high call. The church exists so that people have a community in which they may confess their sin, their own turning away from life, whatever form that destructiveness may take for them, as well as a community that will support them to turn back again. The church exists so that people have a place where they may repent of their fear, their hardness of heart, their isolation, and loss of vision, and where, having repented, they may be restored to the fullness of life. Amen. This is the church. This is the place that we come Sabbath upon Sabbath. This is the place that we come on a communion Sabbath like this one. Not bringing our miscalculations and boo-boos, but rather acknowledging our deeper problem, bringing our sin, bringing our propensity to curse, all of it to the feet of Jesus, that we might feel not only the depth of our sin, but the much deeper reality of the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I suspect that our coming to church ought to be a bit like this. A week ago, I was running east early in the morning here on 4th Street when in front of me was that autumnal equinox sun staring me down, and all of a sudden, I couldn't see anything except that sun. I couldn't see the road, the trees. I could hardly see my shoes. All I could see, a wash, that bright light that is the sun. And I felt two things, my friends. First, it was unnerving. I was nervous. And this is our first and appropriate reaction to dealing with ourselves in all of our sinfulness. It's unnerving to talk about. But second, as I continued to run east into that beautiful sun, I started to feel freedom. For everything was washed away. All of the things that I might, I might look at were removed from sight. And I found that all that I knew was that somehow I was bathed in a rich robe of bright righteousness. Jesus through and through. This is why we come to church, my brothers and sisters. Not merely to hear a few good suggestions about how to do Monday better, but rather we come recognizing the depth of our sin, of our brokenness, that we might experience the richness of His bright grace 
And that, yes, we might walk out of this place still with a limp, but we walk back out of this place with hope because Jesus Christ has given us new life. No longer do we walk cursed, but we walk blessed, and this changes everything. Oh, yeah. Among the rich compliments, that treasure trove of blessing that Balaam lavishes on Israel. He offers up the best compliment any one of us could be given. In Numbers 24, 17, he says to the assembled congregation, a star will come out of you, Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Guess what, congregation? Jesus can arise from our congregation. Jesus can rise up and bless from our congregation. The greatest compliment that you can be given, Jesus can be alive in you. You can bring Jesus into the world when you receive him. And now together we celebrate the bread and the cup. And so I want to invite you to come forward to receive, to take the emblems back to your place, and we will eat and drink together. Just a word, if you see someone near you who might have difficulty traversing the aisle, offer to pick up an emblem for them. And if you find that you might have difficulty, we're family. Please tap the shoulder of someone near you and ask them if they wouldn't bring back for you as well. Let's take the bread and the cup together this morning. On communion Sabbaths, our final act of worship takes place at the doors where the deacons take up a benevolent offering that cares for those in need within our church community. I also want to mention that uh, to your left here in what we call the green room, uh, elders are present. If there are any prayer concerns that you wish to share with them or to pray with them, they will be available uh, to minister to you. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Amen. Thank you.